This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Friday, May 11th, 2018, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here's one thing I like, one phenomenon. So someone or something associated with Donald Trump, sometimes Donald Trump says or does something crazy, and the high-minded newspapers of record have to track down experts to say that was crazy, but they can't say crazy. They say things like, uh, that was somewhat unusual. So you get AT&T paying Michael Cohen $600,000 or Novartis paying him $1.2 million. And there's no reason why you'd pay this schlubby guy who shakes down the Daily Beast for writing stories about Donald Trump's sex life. Except, you know, he knows Donald Trump. So you go to an expert like Larry Noble, who used to be the general counsel of the Federal Elections Commission. This guy would know. And you quote him as saying, yes, uh, it's an ethical concern if you have a lawyer who appears to be selling access to a current client who is president. Or when... Donald Trump pays Michael Cohen $35,000 a month, essentially with the explanation, yeah, he'll take care of stuff like paying off porn stars. You really need to go to an expert. Like, once again, Larry Noble saying, it's not usual for an attorney representing someone to pay out of his own pocket. Or you'll go to Robert Weissman, president of the watchdog group Public Citizen, saying, the idea of having money funneled through the president's personal lawyer into a shell company, I don't think that happens very often. These are all quotes put together by CNN or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. The New York Times talking about the Michael Cohen payment scheme from AT&T and Novartis used this phrase. It strikes legal experts as unusual because I guess when Donald Trump is up there saying I'm smarter than the generals and we're going to build a wall and we're going to bomb the shit out of them, the editors of these newspapers say, well... There's only one thing to do, and it's what we always do. There's only one thing to disabuse the public of the information that he's spreading, and that is consult a well-respected citizen advocate. Once we get the chair, perhaps Fred Wertheim, of a citizen advocacy group, then the public will learn the truth. Ah, poor legacy media. Not fake news, just kind of getting played news. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, but first... Mike McFall was an ambassador to Russia, and now he is an ambassador of knowledge and goodwill about Russia to us right here on The Gist. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Michael McFall was ambassador to the Russian Federation, so that gives you a sense of the time period in which he worked at that job. He also served uh, on President Obama's National Security Council, which led him to the post. He is now a professor of political science and the director of the uh, Freeman Spogli, Spogli Institute for Internet. Spogli yeah. took a little Italian, and I met Silvia Pajoli, so I'm able to pronounce Spogli uh-huh. Institute for International Studies at Stanford. His new book, which is memoir but also recent history of Russia, is from Cold War to Hot Peace: An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Thanks for coming in person. Thanks for doing this again. Thanks for having me. So it is Putin's Russia, but there's a lot of Medvedev in there, and I get the sense mm. that that was a guy maybe we could work with. That means you read the book. Thank <laughs> you for reading. You're absolutely right. I mean, we did work with him. He was president in the first term of uh, President Obama's administration, the three years I worked at the White House before becoming ambassador. And for those years, kind of 2009 to the end of 2011, uh, we got a lot of things done with mm-hmm. Medvedev. We got a START treaty, reducing by 30% the number of nuclear weapons allowed in the world. We got the most comprehensive sanctions against Iran ever. Couldn't have done that without Medvedev. We opened a supply route. A lot of people don't know this, but we opened a supply route called the Northern Distribution Network that went through Russia and other parts of Central Asia into Afghanistan to supply our troops in Afghanistan. Why that was so important is we wanted to diversify our supply routes so that we were not dependent on Pakistan. Right. Over 90% of our supplies went through Pakistan when we showed up at the White House. And that was important to us because without reducing that dependency, we couldn't have gone after Osama bin Laden in 2011. So what this tells me, a few things, but it tells me that uh, the United States' current uh, animosity, enmity towards Russia is very much focused on one person. And I know that the way we cover the world, it usually, usually may uh, demagogue the one leader. And sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But I don't have to tell you, um, different countries have different priorities. And sometimes you can find a way to get along and sometimes the actual person in charge does get in the way. I can't think of a greater case than Russia because what I'm trying to say is if you change leadership in Saudi Arabia... U.S.-Saudi Arabian relations would be pretty similar. Change, yeah. Right. And if Kim Jong-un slips on something and dies tomorrow, I think that junta will somehow manage to keep the policies of North Korea. But I think if Putin slipped on something and died tomorrow, it could, within a year, be a totally different picture. I agree. And I also agree that that's not a popular thing to say, by the way, in the media, but most certainly in academia, mm-hmm. we don't study leaders. We the study great man states. of history is out of favor. Yeah, there's no place for that in political science right. today. But in my own experience uh, in writing this book and the history of this book, but also my hit, the, my time in government, leaders mattered a lot. I mean, when were we most cooperative with Russia and the Soviet Union? Is when Gorbachev was there, when Yeltsin was there. When Putin comes back, the first eight years, things get tense. There's this interregnum with Medvedev, and he definitely, I sat with him many, many times, he definitely had a different worldview than Putin. He definitely saw himself as a modernizer, as a westernizer. He he told Obama, I read you in the Harvard Law Review, right? I mean, he was urban and 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 smart and not backward looking at least. That's exactly right. Had a Twitter account, one of the first to have a Twitter account. And he served, remember, he was president. Uh, The big decision maker during that time was Prime Minister Putin that whole time. 
And by the way, Medvedev, I know, wanted to be president again. He just had to win one vote. Yeah. You know, he had yeah. to win one, one vote, <laughs> Vladimir Putin. And to me, the turning point for Medvedev was we did all these cooperative things I just talked about, and then the Arab Spring happened. And so you have demonstrations all over the region. We, the United States, we, the Obama administration, we're just reacting to those events as well. We didn't, we didn't cause those events. And when things An got immolated nasty, Tunisian grocer caused those events. Exactly. Yeah. Small D Democrats. Yeah. And in, in, you know, the arc of this story in the book, it's small D Democrats that are getting in the way of better U.S.-Russian relations, whether it's in the Middle East, Russia, or Ukraine later on. But what happened in the buildup, as you may remember, in Libya, there was the threat of genocide in Benghazi. We had to take a decision whether we should use force or not. We decided to use force. We went to the U.N. Security Council. And Russia abstained. Medvedev abstained. I was actually at the meeting with Medvedev in the Kremlin when he told us we're going to authorize this use of force. That had never happened in Soviet right, or Russian right. history. And people should know of the five veto powers when they abstain, it means go ahead. They that's have right. their interest. They can't vote yes. But that's a huge thing in abstention from the only power who would block that. It was a huge thing. We, To be honest, I was surprised. Mm-hmm. I did not believe it because I was saying we they would not do this. And the good news, whether the longer story of Libya is a more complicated story, but we went forward, and that's when Putin publicly criticized President uh, Medvedev, I think, for the first time and said he doesn't understand the Middle East, he doesn't understand the Americans, he's hoodwinked by them. And I think that's when Putin said, oh, this guy's too dangerous as president. I'm going to have to replace him. What did Putin see about the United States' reaction towards the Arab Spring, which was— I don't wish to insult you because I know you're in a foreign policy shop, but it has been described as somewhat dissolute. I mean, the intervention in Libya did not work out well. There was a lot of hemming and hawing about what we would do with our one-time benefactor in Egypt and then the Muslim Brotherhood. From the inside, it didn't seem like we were pulling the strings. What did Putin see from the outside? So, you know, the first time uh, Obama met Putin, it was July 2009. We went out to his his dacha. Dacha is a weird word because it's a giant compound, but yeah. uh, his country estate. And for the first 55 minutes, Putin lectured Obama about all the mistakes that President Bush and his team had made. Uh, Putin kind of likes President Bush, by the way, but his, the administration, they were well, idiots. Bush liked Putin. <laughs> he saw his soul. <laughs> <laughs> they had, there's something that, you know, they had a relationship. But he went on and on, and he said, you don't understand the Middle East, and you guys use your overt and covert force to overthrow regimes that you don't like. And by the way, there's some empirical data to support that hypothesis about American foreign policy over the last 70 years. But Obama said to him, when he got to the Iraq War, which he said was a complete disaster— Uh, Obama said, you're right. I agree with you. And and Putin was kind of shocked. He said, what do you mean you agree with me? You're the Americans. I was like, no, I was against that war. And and what Obama was trying to say is I'm different. I'm not a regime changer. We're not going to be overthrowing regimes. And, you know, as we walked to the car that day, I'm listening to Putin say his final words as we uh, drive back to town. You know, I sensed that he thought, okay, maybe this guy is different. Mm -hmm. I'll keep an open mind. And when we get to the Arab Spring— that's when I think Putin decides, uh-huh, 
just like the old guys. Now, there have been, the, the Trump administration sa- says we've been far tougher on Russia than any other past administration. And actually, if you look at it quite narrowly, taken, you know, a year into his presidency versus the first year of, say, the Obama presidency, well, it was a totally different time. You were doing the reset. It was, was a different time, yeah. Th- we were literally dealing with different Russian in- administrations, literally. So that's not fair. Assess what measures they have taken that have been legitimate and what measures that is just lip service. Uh, I'll give you a couple. They were supposed to put together a list of oligarchs that could be targeted. It seemed they cribbed that list from Forbes magazine. Yeah, they they put no attention into it. Kind but, then, but then 60, mem- 60 um, foreign service workers from Russia were expelled. Yep. And seven oligarchs, including his former son-in-law, maybe, that's how opaque Putin is. We don't even know if this guy was his son-in-law. But seven former oligarchs were sanctioned. So yes. has it been a tale of some actual legitimacy and just some absolute lip service? And why the difference? So here's the way I'd describe it. I actually think the Trump administration's policy towards Russia has been pretty good. Mm -hmm. And I actually think there's a lot of continuity between what they have done and what the Obama administration did in the last two years. And I want to remind your listeners, I was not in the government at that time. I'd already left. Obama folks and Trump folks are going to not like that I just said that, right? But I think it's true. Uh, Across the board, basically— Putin invaded Ukraine. He annexed uh, Crimea. There had to be a response to that. The Obama administration put in place by far and away the most comprehensive set of sanctions against Russia ever. Yes. Period. More than Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush in response to the invasion of Georgia in 2008 didn't put a single person on a sanctions list. So they did that. Yeah. They Well, to be fair, back in Reagan's time, it's not like there was a lot of international trade that they could have sanctioned. Yeah, they were a they, communist regime that wasn't getting out there. Fair in the point, markets. but yeah. they could have done more on the pipeline. Okay. Uh, they yeah, could have yeah. they could have had travel bans, but fair point. Number two, they they built up NATO. Trump has continued that. Number three, they've helped to uh, build up Ukraine, which I think is really a frontline state in this battle between Putin and the West. But they've also gone further. I'm glad you mentioned that. So those sanctions are real. If you're Mr. Deripaska or Mr. Vexelberg, these are people I know personally, they got hit hard. And those are real. And they're having direct negative, I mean, big negative economic implications for those two gentlemen. That didn't happen before. Uh, They provided lethal weapons to the Ukrainians. That's a decision that uh, President Obama never wanted to make. So the administration's policy, I think— There's a lot of continuity, and I basically support it. There's one problem. The main decision maker, Donald Trump, President Trump, doesn't agree with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes doesn't agree with it. Even he'll say that publicly. And so that, I think, is a confusing message that does not advance America's interests. So the last set of questions I want to ask you about is what happens with or Putin? What happens to him in Russia? I know what happens in the United States. I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but Trump's not going to be president forever. Right. Can't be assumed in Russia. No, no. I can predict yeah. Putin will not be president forever. There might be. Forever. Russia, Russia, <laughs> Russia, might, Russia might end before Putin live. does. I don't well, know. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> I interviewed Ann Applebaum once, mm. and she said, you know, we always talk about Putin as this mastermind. I think, this is her talking, I think he's made all these mistakes. I think annexing Crimea was a huge mistake yes. and a huge drain on his economy and whatever short boost he got in terms of nationalism in Russia wasn't worth it. So how does it end? Does he misstep? Is there international pressure? You know, how will Putin ever stop being this thorn in America's side and this thorn in the side of most Russians? 
I don't know, and I don't believe anybody that tells you that they know. Um, we're not very good in the government. We're not very good in political science predicting these kind of events. But I'd say a couple of things. One is this is Putinism, right? This is a one charismatic leader that anchors this thing. He doesn't have a political party. He doesn't have a strong ideology. He doesn't have a military behind him ready to kill people for to keep the next guy in power next, right? The, the junta word that you used before. Right, right, right. And, and, he, I mean, he's a strong man, but he doesn't maintain gulags. And, right, yeah. right. And so I don't think this system survives very long without him. So once he steps down or is incapacitated, I think it unravels pretty quickly. Now, which trajectory it goes, that's the million-dollar question. I think that the forces that actually agree with Ann Applebaum, and by the way, there's a lot of people in Russia that agree, including people that work in, the, in Putin's government right now. Yeah. I know them. Yeah. Their heads are down now. They're being quiet. But it doesn't mean they've changed their views about him. And so I think within the system, from the elites, there'll be pressure to move in a more open uh, Western way. And then in society, just, you know, I was there in 2012 at the height of the protests. And the biggest protest was May 6, 2012, right before the inauguration of Vladimir Putin, exactly six years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And that became violent um, and many people were arrested and some are still in jail today. And a few weeks later, maybe it was few months later, I was at a high-tech company in Russia, which I probably shouldn't mention, but, a, you know, a prominent one. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, we're chatting with people, and, and I'm, I'm familiar with what high-tech companies feel like, you know, I've, I've been to many. Um, and it felt a lot like a Silicon Valley place. Uh, and I said, how many people were at the May 6th protest? Everybody raised their hand, everybody in the room. And then there was another one coming up. That's right. There was another one coming up. And I said, how many plan to protest? And only three people raised their hands, three young men. And I was, you know, I, I'm just chatting. And I was like, well, why is that? And a young woman said something to me very powerful. She said, Mr. Ambassador, I'm the breadwinner in the family. I'm the engineer. I got two kids. My no-good-for-nothing husband can't do anything. If I go to jail, who's going to take care of my kids? But don't think for a moment, because I'm not protesting, that I've changed my views about Putin. So I'm going to have my head down now because I got my short-term economic interests, but her preferences haven't changed. Would she answer a pollster honestly? Never. This is one of the most monitored systems on the planet. They can record anything you do, yeah. whether you're at Spasa House or Ritz-Carlton. Anything you do, they can record. That is a fact. Now you're living in that society. You're sitting out in Novosibirsk, and Ivan Ivanovich calls you from Moscow and says— Hey, I'm working for a polling firm. By the way, all the polling firms except one are controlled by the state. What do you think of Vladimir Putin? There's only one rational (laughs) answer to that question. (laughs) Aces in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Michael McFall is a former ambassador to the Russian Federation, and he uh, teaches at Stanford. His new book is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. the spiel. The number one question I get asked is, uh, Mike, how do you come up with all those ideas? And I'll tell you, I put in a lot of emotional labor 
In fact, two weeks from now, I'll be taken off on a Monday. That's my emotional labor day. Okay, no, it's not. I've been laughing at this phrase, emotional labor. Okay, so you built the house and you used the actual labor, but you know what I did? I worried about safety on the job site. I put in a lot of emotional labor. I'd say we're about even. I want my half the paycheck. So how do I really, really and truly think of all these ideas? Uh, Does it just happen? Is it kismet? Yes, in a way, but I put myself in a position to facilitate ideas. Now, there are a couple different ways of thinking. There's convergent and divergent thinking. And for the last two years, I've been working on this book. Upon further review, this sports what-if book. And if you haven't heard, there's a podcast about this book, which... um, launches the same day as the book drops, which is Tuesday. So on the book, I have to be convergent. There's a bit of divergence at first, which is, I think, I cast my mind wide and think about the world of sports what-ifs. And once I come up with them or work with my collaborators or other people to come up with them, then I kind of cast it. Usually I would come up with an idea. I'd go out. I'd pitch it to who I think is the right person, although that's a bit of convergence. And then we'd talk about, and that person would write the exact way to answer the what-if question. And a similar thing really goes on with the gist. I kind of chalked the gist up and the process to the unknown, but since I was working on Upon Further Review for so many years, I realized there was a lot of overlap with the gist. So what I like to do to spark ideas, to turn my brain into a tinderbox so when the spark hits, it ignites, is I subscribe to a lot of lists. I subscribe to a lot of these tip sheets, what they used to call them. And I'd like to tell you about a few of them. Now, one is so good, I don't want to even mention it because like my secret, but I will. Jonathan Bernstein in Bloomberg, Early Returns. It is a phenomenal email every day. Political science, he has like six. He has his own little thing at the top, then about six links. And, you know, every day, four or five or even all six of the links are just worth reading. They're brilliant. Another great little tip sheet email is the 538 significant digits email. Maybe you've heard about this. I see evidence in a lot of places that this is a pretty popular tip sheet because Walt Hickey, who puts it together, will say something about the pay gap in English art houses. He found some article in English art house quarterly. And then I'll see that repeated four or five places that I know do not have a subscription to English art house quarterly. Now there's another uh, quasi fact sheet I don't subscribe to. Well, I guess, I guess I do in a way. It's on the third page of the New York Times and it's the really sparklingly named of interest column. And what they do is they pull eight different facts from time stories that they claim are of interest. I guess they don't want to overpromise. And here's the thing of these eight fascinating facts. Doesn't really work for me. Here's why. Two or three of them, just not fascinating. Here's today's of interest. In 2017, the Ford Mustang assembled in the United States got 52% of its parts from the United States and Canada. How is that remotely fascinating? And what per- of the 52, what percent is the United States and Canada? Wait, don't answer. No matter what the answer is, it's simply not fascinating. So that's one problem with the supposedly fascinating of interest column. Another problem is that some of the stories are fascinating. It's just that I would have gotten them 
by reading the newspaper, which I do. The only way to have access to this is to read the actual newspaper, to have it in your hand. So here was one that is fascinating. You ready? The news media reported more than 20 cases of buses catching fire in Rome last year. Now, if this was buried deep in a story about Rome infrastructure or, or Zippo Grilli, what's his name, Beppo Grilli, or, uh, that would be cool that they were pulling it out and telling me about it. Not the case. Here is the name of the article that that fascinating bus fire fact was culled from. Here it is. Rome is burning, or at least its buses are bursting into flames. So not really, basically, there's this institution called a headline, and all you've done is taken a headline and made it a little smaller and put it on a different page. Not fascinating. And the other, there's another large category of supposedly fascinating facts that don't really remind me of what should be in the New York Times. I will tell you exactly what they remind me of. Here is an example of that from today. R. Kelly has not had a top 40 hit in more than a decade. I knew that. I did not know that. What it reminds me of is one of those Larry King columns from USA Today when he just throws out something random that doesn't even remotely pique my interest. You know, like, no one does light comedy better than Tony Danza. I eat blueberries every day and I'm better off for it. Ah, Kelly hasn't had a hit in a decade. What a talent. But the daily tip sheet that I have the most fraught relationship with is the Aspen Institute's five best ideas of the day. Aspen is in the ideas business. They branded themselves with the word ideas and they're sending us the five best of the day. I want the five best ideas. These that they give me Every day, they do come every day, they're not the best ideas. Then there is a category of best ideas that aren't even ideas. They're just questions. I'll help you. I'll read the headlines, and then I'll helpfully answer the questions for you. You ready? With supercomputers, we're seeing a revolution in hurricane forecasting. Is it enough? No. Can we cure loneliness? We cannot. Google's AI assistant sounds like a human on the phone. Should we be worried? Eh, a little bit. But here was the worst best idea of the day. Here is uh, how the Aspen Institute touted it. Here's a guide for how women can use their unique biology as a productivity tool. Their unique biology. Unique. A biology that is shared by the majority of the inhabitants on this planet is said to be unique. But out of curiosity, and let me tell you, this wasn't the best idea I had all day, I clicked the article. The article in Forbes was titled, How Women Can Use Monthly Periods as a Productivity Tool. That's a better headline. But as I read the article, oh my God, it is just this side of a horoscope. Here's the second sentence. With more women than ever in the workforce climbing up the ladder, it's time to consider what we can do to finally shatter that elusive glass ceiling. No, the glass ceiling's not elusive. It's omnipresent. That's what makes it a hindrance. If it was elusive, it wouldn't be there. I guess what's elusive is shattering the glass ceiling, but the glass ceiling's ubiquitous. It keeps you down. Also, you're climbing the ladder as a glass ceiling, mixed metaphor. I was skeptical. And the idea is, depending on your particular time of the month, you're better at thinking of some things rather than another. Like phase one, the follicular phase, six to 14 days long, that's good for creative thinking. You're a creative superstar during those times. You are open and ready to try new things. It's a horoscope. Phase two, the ovulatory phase. 
the great communicator. Communication and collaboration skills are at their highest all month. The brain chemistry you have during this phase heightens your verbal skills. Sorry, can't talk. It's not my ovulatory phase. Get back to me in those 15 to 17 days. Oh, wait, I have a lot of other calls scheduled. And let me just say this. Of course, uh, during menstruation, during your cycle, the body changes. Hormones are affected. I would not at all be surprised if different mental processes are somehow affected, but none of this has been proven. I'm sure it's different for other women. And to look at it like, oh, this is your superstar period for thinking, and this is your superstar period for conversations, that's entirely subjective. Maybe, I I suppose it's an advancement to say that uh, during uh, one cycle, there are times when one is deficient. But if we acknowledge that there are times that one is superior, in this skill or that, then by definition, one is less good at that skill at different times during their period. I really do think it's a lot like a horoscope. So the question is, why do I keep on with these best ideas of the day? I don't know. I think that one day it's going to give me the best idea. And if I'm not there to be receptive to it, I will have lost. Anyway, I probably should only subscribe during phase one, the follicular phase. Well, anyway, this is all a big preamble, very big, to my saying that this is an antenna twig, the three-week period where we go back and we issue corrections and we give awards. And I wanted to issue one correction, that shooting at the Waffle House uh, that I said was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It was on Murfreesboro Pike in the town of Antioch, Tennessee, which is actually a little closer to Nashville, 20-something miles outside of Murfreesboro. And now let us give the Lopstar. The Lopstar is the listener, the tweeter, anyone who emails us, who uh, made our life a little better. The runner-up for the Lopstar of the Antan Twig is Lars Husslebus. In a recent spiel, I made reference to Ross Perot's wife, Margot Perot, and Lars Husslebus got back to me and said, Margot Perot, how did I not know? Is she quick with a bon mot? Does she eat escargot and drink malo? Or does she perhaps unwind with a cup of silent tea? Mwah! That, that is a great tweet. That is called making my life better. The runner-up lobster of the Antan Twig is a lobster place near me called the Brooklyn Lobster Pound, and they sent me an email, and the subject line was, Treat your mom like a lobster. And so I will, although I should say that the Brooklyn Lobster Pound has some uh, confusing menu items and iconography. The logo is a lobster being towed, like a lobster being impounded. But doesn't this give you the sense that it's the old broken down lobster, maybe the lobster with an out-of-date registration that's winding up in the Brooklyn Lobster Pound? And then when I looked over their Mother's Day menu, it's a $65 Mother's Day lobster brunch. And your uh, main courses are a choice of the lobster roll, that's, that's lobster, the lobster benedict, the lobster citrus salad, I'm on board this whole way, or the seafood boil, which you think is great, except it has this note, add lobster, $25. You're the lobster pound. It should be subtract lobster and we get a discount. Can't be adding lobster to the lobster dinner and charging us more. That's why you're the runner up for the lobster of the Antan Twig, Brooklyn Lobster Pound. And here is the winner, Mr. Jeff Craples Jr. At Mr. Craples, he's a teacher. He's a Google certified teacher, which means I guess he looks things up on Google. So I recently enjoyed an iced coffee 
And uh, it was served to me, as is the fashion of the time, by high-class coffee trucks. What they like to do is the straw, they put it in the coffee, they take off half the straw, but they leave a little bit of paper on the tip. They leave just a little bit of extra straw because that is, that is what classy coffee trucks do. And I was marveling at how far our society had come. And I asked on Twitter, has anyone done the longitudinal study documenting the inevitable plunge in communicable diseases in areas that leave the tip of paper on the straw where that has become standard for beverages? I have a couple theories. And Mr. Jeff Kraples tweeted to me, if not a longitudinal study, at the very least, could someone do a straw poll? It's simple. It's efficient. Like the paper on the straw itself, it saves lives. You, Jeff Kraples, you are the lobster of the Anten Twig. And that's it for today's show. Could the intellectual dark web help producer Pierre Bienname revive the condor population? Will instant runoff voting be the solution just senior producer Mary Wilson is searching for to the question of net neutrality? Does Steve Lichtai, executive producer for Slate Podcasts, believe that blockchain technology holds the key to combating avian flu? The gist, can negative ionization lead to body positivity? Don't ask me, I'm not ovulating. Oopra, depra, dupra, and thanks for listening. <laughs>